0: I'm going to read from Luke verse 12. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. And he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Father, bless the word of the Lord to our hearts and lives this morning. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, let's be seated together. Okay, we are in the book of Luke, obviously. Last week we considered the four astounding miracles that Luke chooses, one after the other, to show, to demonstrate that Jesus surely was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, showing his authority and his power. In chapter 9, here we also have another crowning incredible miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. These miracles show Jesus' power and authority over the elements, over sicknesses, over demons, even over death itself. And they lead us to the all-important question, which we will land on at the end of this morning, who do men say that I am? Or who do you say that I am in Luke 9, verse 20? This is the all-important question at the center of the gospel and at the Christian's faith. Who is Jesus? Is he really who the scriptures claim him to be? Is he divine? Is the, he the son of God? Is he the savior, etc.? cetera? In light of the miracles that he did, The disciples came to believe on him fully. But despite the miracles that he did, the Jewish leaders rejected him as the Messiah. And we will see a turning point in the Gospels. It's here in, in Luke chapter 9, and, and similarly in the other Gospels also, where, where there's a shift. I mean, God, of course, knew from the foundation of the earth. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. It was always understood and prophesied and purposed that Jesus would go to the cross and die for the sins of men, of course. But nevertheless, he came as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And there was a Jewish expectation that he would come and he would set up his kingdom on the earth. He would deliver the Jews from their oppressors, which at this time was the Romans. And there was this expectation that the Messiah is coming. However, under the leadership of the, of the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees, etc., Jesus was rejected as the Messiah. And the kingdom was not canceled, and this is an important statement. It was postponed, if you like. And now we are in a a huge interruption called the church age. But Jesus did not set up his kingdom by taking his throne on the earth at his first coming, but instead he went to the cross. And now he will take up the throne when he returns in his second coming. So in this chapter, in verse 50, it says, when he knew that he was to be received up, he then set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And he began to speak not about the kingdom on the earth, but he then began to speak about the church, and particularly that he would go to the cross and die and be resurrected. And he first mentions the church, which we'll go into more next week. So, so far in these miracles, in the parables, in the teaching, the the disciples are the students who are observing, listening, learning, being persuaded in their hearts. Maybe the multitudes are not fully engaged in understanding and believing, but something is happening in the hearts and lives of the disciples. And it's all focused on who Jesus is. And we see that question rise through these miracles and through these passages. At this point, at the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus is now going to commission his disciples. He says, okay, you've seen enough. You've been around for a while. You've heard my teachings. Now I'm going to commission you a little mission around the towns of Galilee, and he sends them out. Let's jump in at the beginning of the chapter. He calls his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Isn't that incredible? Unlike any other prophet or leader, he actually gives them power. And authority, power is the ability and authority is the right to do it. And he gives it to his disciples. It says, over all demons, in Matthew's account, it says, over all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Clearly, this was a spiritual gifting for this particular time and mission. It would validate their preaching and their message. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick, verse 2. This, by the way, they are preaching the same message as John the Baptist, relating to the kingdom of God. Remember, he was preparing the way. Why? For the king is here, the Messiah is here. Prepare the way, prepare your hearts, turn and repent, for the kingdom is here. In Matthew's account, it says, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark's account, it says, They went out and preached that people should repent. Verse three, he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. This is a short trip around the region, through the towns, preaching in a simple manner, trusting God for his provision. And his provision would often come through those who would receive them and receive their message. They would be welcomed into some homes. And if they were to do that, they were to stay in that home, preach in the town, and then leave. This is verse 4. Whatever house you enter or whatever, whoever receives you, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This mission was a concentrated, perhaps one of the last concentrated opportunities for those in the region to respond to the message and accept Jesus as the Messiah. If they didn't receive it, they would shake the dust off Off their feet. This, the Jews actually did that when they left Gentile territory. But here, these Jewish disciples were to do that to their Jewish brethren if they did not receive and respond to the message, basically saying, I preached it, this is the message, you've heard it, you do what you will with it. So they departed, verse six, and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere and again central to the gospel or the kingdom message was the person of Christ this is why in luke's account he inserts this these next few verses about herod and antipas about herod the tetrarch or the governor because these questions that people were beginning to ask who is this man that even The storms obey him. The demons are cast out. He is healing. Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And Herod had the same question in verse 7. Herod, the Tetrarch, heard all that was done by him. You see, the word was going out. The people were beginning to hear what was happening. And Herod also heard. And he was perplexed or troubled because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. He was particularly worried about that because he was the one that killed John and had him beheaded. And by some, it was said that Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the old prophets had risen again. You see, there were certain opinions and rumors. Who is he? And people were offering their answers. Oh, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. It's Elijah. It's one of the other prophets. And Herod himself perhaps even thought it was John the Baptist risen from the dead. He had this question. So in verse 9, Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. There's that question again. Who is this? And the apostles, verse 9, see that the apostles, not just the 12 or the disciples, but the apostles. The word means sent ones. For now they had been sent. They were returning from their mission. And it says they told him all that they had done. In the other account, also what they had said. They came back with enthusiastic reports. In Mark's account, it says, they gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. This is across the top head of Galilee. And he took them there for a particular reason. He took them there to rest. Let me read you Mark's account. He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat themselves. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat By themselves. Luke doesn't mention the boat. The other Gospels do. They get in a boat. Jesus says, listen, you have been ministering. You've been pouring out. You've been teaching and praying. And people are being healed. It's time to go across to a deserted place and rest. It's crucial to have rest in the spiritual life, particularly in ministry. To be recharged. To make sure that you are encouraged and edified and spirit-filled. Song of Solomon 1.6, the writer Solomon says, Other vineyards I have kept, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And your vineyard, your spiritual life, is your first mission field to ensure that you are encouraged and built up always. And spiritual rest and physical rest are important. Back to verse 11. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. They followed him and he received them. This, by the way, was a short walk or run around the top part of the lake. The boat would have been in view the whole way. They saw Jesus and his disciples and they're running around the shore and waiting for him to, to, them to land and they meet them on the other side. Mark's account says this, and they ran there on foot from all the cities and arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Matthew says the same. He was moved with compassion. He received them. He responded to them. Even though they were so tired and had gone there to rest, they end up not having that opportunity to rest. But... Part two was waiting for them. And it says he received, accepted them. Why? And again, Mark's account says this. Listen. Because, why was he moved with compassion? Because they were like sheep have, having no shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Let's go back to Luke. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So again, the disciples didn't get to rest. It was going to be a long day for them because now is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, Matthew's Gospel tells us that there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So although we call it the feeding of the 5,000, it was in fact many more than that. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Think of that. It's the only miracle, major miracle, that is recorded in all four Gospels. Luke 9, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6. And this story, and hear me now, this story is sandwiched between Herod's question of who is this and Jesus' question, who am I? It's the final story in there to help those present watching and those listening and reading even today to come to that all important question, who is Jesus? And if anyone is not sure, first there is this incredible miracle that he performs, particularly for the sake of the disciples, for they are the ones who handle the bread and distribute it. That they would finally come to the full persuasion that this is not just the rabbi, not just the master, not just the teacher, but this is the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God. Amazing. So let's look at it here in verse 12. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said, send the multitude away. That was their um, you know, suggestion for the situation. Send them away that they can go, lodge, get provisions. We're in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, of course, we, we have come to know how Jesus asks these questions. He's provoking his disciples. He's looking for a response of faith. He wants to teach them a lesson. Here are 5,000 plus people, all gathered, all weary, all hungry. And Jesus looks to his feeble disciples and says, You give them to eat. You feed them. And this will be an important lesson that they would learn for their ministry that they were called to do something beyond their own natural means. And when they would teach and preach and pastor and church plant, etc., they would have that understanding that we are feeding, but it's really God who is feeding. That we are ministering, but it's really God who is ministering. It's only God by his power, by his spirit, by his life, that can affect and change people's lives. And we even gather here this morning and there is a man standing before us and a pulpit and a book and we're in a church building. But we have come to understand and expect much more than what we see or, or experience on a natural level. But we say, God, will you feed us? God, will you speak to us? God, will you meet us? And somehow, faithfully, as meager as our stage may be, he does that. Amazing. Amazing. So in verse uh, 13, he says, give them to eat. Now, Matthew's account, he says to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And John's account gives us an incredible insight. He adds the part about Philip. Do you remember? Let's look at it together. In John 6... Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Don't you love that? Multitude coming towards him. They just got off the boat. The disciples are tired. And Jesus singles out Philip for some reason. Perhaps because Philip is from Bethsaida. He's from that region. He puts the question to him, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? In other words, the disciples are saying, the others are saying, we should send them away. Philip, what do you say? What's your answer? Where shall we buy bread? Now, let's ask the question, why does Jesus ask this? What is he looking for? What is he teaching even to us this morning? And we find the answer in the next verse. It's an astounding verse, verse 6. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Don't you love that? Jesus knew what he would do. He's looking to these disciples. They, they don't have the answer for the situation. He's provoking, provoking. He's prodding. He's searching. Come on, Philip. What do you, what, you know, where's your faith? What do you say to this situation? Because we are so prone to think so little of Christ. How easily, with natural thinking that we may slip into, we limit the Holy One of Israel. We often look to natural resources and natural answers before we look to Him. So He says, He asked this to test Him. It means to prove Him, to try Him, to put His faith to the test. And He may, or we should say will, do the same to you and I. In a certain situation, a certain time, there's that prodding question. You know, he's asking the question, but he knows what he's going to do. He's really wanting to find the response of faith. He's setting the stage for a miracle. And Philip answers. Let's see his answer together. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. 200 denarii, it's quite a sum, actually, perhaps even a year's wage. But this is as far as Philip could go. 200 denarii, if we had that, and by the way, we don't, Jesus, so I don't know why I'm even saying it, but even if we had 200 denarii, oh, that's not enough, or maybe that would be enough for each one to have just a little. You know, what's he saying? saying. Even if we had this amount, a whole year's wages, we could only get enough for a little. That's as far as he could go. But he could have answered differently. He could have answered in faith. He could have said, we don't need to go and buy. We don't. You are here. You you can call down manna from heaven. It doesn't matter if there are 2,000 or 5,000 or 50,000 or 2 million wandering in the wilderness. You can provide for them. You are Yahweh Jireh. You are the God who provides. You You can make anything out of nothing. And you are with us. That's enough. Philip could say, listen, I don't know how but I know you, I trust you. But he wasn't quite in that place yet at this time. But it's okay, one of his fellow disciples chimes in, and what does he say? This is Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves, two small fish, but what are they among so many? Oh, you shouldn't have added that last statement. You could have just said, there's a lad here with two loaves and two small fish, and that's enough with you, Jesus. But he didn't. He says, what is that among so many? Could have again answered in faith. But they both agreed with each other in principle. And they didn't really have an answer. Let's go back to Luke's account. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. In Matthew's account, when they said we only have these five loaves, Jesus says, Bring them to me. Little... Is enough in the hands of Jesus. Right? You you think, I, I don't have much Lord, or can I and little in his hands, in faith. We we bring it to Him and He can multiply. He can do that. Just these five loaves they had, He has them sit down. Verse 16. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and He does something quite bizarre. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and he broke them and he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. Matthew's account tells us he gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. And we love this principle. It is going through the hands of the disciples and as they are breaking the bread and passing it on, it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and the crowds keep coming and it does not stop. And I can imagine the disciples just looking at each other, just marveling that in that moment they are part of a miracle that no man could do, that this is beyond explanation. This is a miracle. And we are breaking the bread, and we are passing it out. We are seeing it happen. In John's account, it says that they had as much as they wanted. This is, the, this is a, an all-you-can-eat buffet, on that day. All you can eat. They had as much as they wanted. And the disciples were giving them the food. But again, we go back to the principle. The disciples were giving the food, but Jesus was multiplying the food. And again, that would be an important lesson for them in ministry. You can... Give the food, but Jesus multiplies it. Jesus provides it. This is 1 Corinthians 3.7, where it says, he that sows is nothing, he that plants is nothing, but God gives the increase. Nevertheless, we are co-laborers together with him, but really he's doing the building, he's doing the work, he's drawing people, converting people, saving people, but somehow by his grace he will use available vessels to do that amazing so let's finish up here verse 17 so they all ate and were filled they all ate and they were filled amazing philip had said well if we had this much we could they could all have a little but this ends this way they were all filled the idea is that they were satisfied they were like okay that's enough no thanks They were all filled and satisfied completely. I love that. It implies that there was quite a feast that day. And in John's Gospel, Jesus tells them to gather up the fragments that remain. It was actually Jesus purposely told his disciples, grab a basket and collect the fragments that remain. And we read here in Luke, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. By the 12. 12 and 12. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. Again, a very, I believe that the 12 baskets full of fragments was also a calculated miracle because the lesson was continuing that each one of them would hold a basket and look at the fragments that remained and look at one another and look at Jesus and in their heart answer the question of who he is. Perhaps they weren't mathematicians, simple fishermen, but five thousand people plus women and children, five loaves, two fish, all ate, all were filled, and there were twelve baskets of fragments left over. You know, how do you explain that? They needed deeply to consider in that moment. And we also need to do that. Oftentimes, we need to hit hit the pause button and consider. Hit the pause button and meditate, consider, think about Jesus. Read the Gospels. Be in the Word. Be in your Bible. Read the Gospels and pause and think about him. Think about all of the names that he's given, all of the incredible things that he has done, all of the prophecies that he has fulfilled. I need to hit the pause button and I need to consider, I need to be refreshed, I need to confess who he is in my life, in my troubles, in my situation in this world. Unfortunately, they didn't consider the miracle of the loaves enough. We read that in Mark 6, 52. It says, when they were next on the storm in the river and they were doubting, it says, because they did not consider the miracle of the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. And when that phrase is used, the hard heart, it means unbelief. They didn't believe. So that tells us we need to consider the miracle of the loaves, because then when the next chapter, when I'm in the storm... I realize who is with me and that he can do this. It's not a problem. I don't need to fret or worry. So we need to consider often this astounding miracle. Oh, I don't have the next verse here, but I'll read it to you and we'll, we'll conclude with this thought that will set us up for uh, this next week. Now he is with his disciples. It says they were alone. He was alone praying. And his disciples joined him and he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? And we know earlier in the chapter that there were some who were saying, we read the verses, right? Herod is saying, is this John the Baptist? Others were saying this is Elijah the prophet, etc." cetera. And this, these rumors are going around, and Jesus understands them, but he's most, most focused on his disciples. And he wants to know what they think, what they say. So he says to them, who do men say that I am? And they answer accordingly. But then Jesus puts the question to them, who do you say that I am? And here, of course, Peter, in one of his good moments, where God is helping him, giving him this incredible confession, Peter stands forth and says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God, in Matthew's account. It clearly says that incredible confession that he has. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And we are blessed also. Remember when when Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see. And Jesus said, oh, you believe, Thomas, because you see. But blessed are those who believe and who have not seen. And that's speaking about us. Blessed are you if you believe this morning and you have not seen. Blessed are, maybe we haven't seen these types of miracles. We go according to the word and we live by faith. But the Bible says, blessed are you if you believe and you have not seen. Blessed are you if you confess that Jesus is the Messiah and has come in the flesh. 1 John 4 gives us a warning as New Testament believers. It says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. And if one says that Jesus has not come in the flesh, that is not the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of Antichrist, which is already in the world. But anyone who confesses that Jesus is come in the flesh, meaning he existed before the incarnation, he was the eternal Son, he was pre existent, and he became a man and walked among us anyone who confesses that spirit, that is the truth according to God's revelation of the Son. So we are blessed people this morning with that confession of faith and that assurance in our heart of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we simply thank you this morning that this has been revealed to us, that Jesus, oh Jesus, the eternal Son, the divine Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that you came here you walked among us you you revealed yourself to men through the works of your hands through the words of your lips through the fulfillment of prophecy and through this incredible book through your word we thank you this morning for your great grace that we are believers this morning that we are gathered here by faith on a Sunday morning as believers. We love to hear your word. And again and again, how you quicken our hearts according to your word. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. We pray for each one here, each one listening online this morning. If you're not sure of your salvation, oh, make that great confession in your heart by faith that Jesus is the Savior. There is no other. Put your faith in him. Say, Jesus, I trust you today. I believe on you today. I am a sinner, and you are the Savior. Oh, I need to turn to look to you. I trust you for the gift of salvation. I am not worthy. I don't deserve it. I cannot earn it, but I receive it as a gift today. And for each one of us on our journey of faith, we pray, bless us, equip us, lead us, teach us, Let your word be open and your voice be so personal and clear in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.